This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mento LLC. Mento LLC Trade Consulting focuses on issues of duty minimization, recovery, and elimination, while also helping our clients with trade compliance issues of both the import and export nature and global cargo security. You can reach us at 978-317-3250 or email me directly at pete.mento at Mento LLC. From Washington, D.C., this is Trade Geek Podcast with your host, Pete Mento. What's up, nerds? Welcome to the Trade Geek Podcast. It's me, Pete Mento, your Trade Geek, and I'm coming to you live from my heavily defended bunker here high up in the sky in Manchester, New Hampshire. I want to thank you all for the um, response from the last podcast. It was nice to get so many uh, emails and messages on LinkedIn. Still no questions, though. Makes me wonder. But in any case, this week is really focused on a, a topic that's um, it's not given enough attention. I think the reason for that, honestly, is because so many of us are uncomfortable with it. Or we were forced into it. We didn't have a choice. And that's, that's cargo security. And beyond that, just security as a whole. Almost everybody I know that got into this crazy business didn't mean to. You know, you went to school for marketing or for whatever the hell business is. And one day you saw a, an article in the newspaper. And by the way, kids, um, for those of you who don't know, a newspaper was something that came out once or twice a day in just about every major American city. There was a section called Help Wanted. And while you sat there and cried to yourself, overcome with anxiety about how you were going to pay your bills, you would circle jobs. And when you were young and either fresh out of college or uh, fresh out of high school, maybe you knew somebody who worked down by the airport, you might get a job working in freight forwarding or working for a customs house broker or working for uh, a trucking company. And you usually got these jobs because you knew a guy. Or like your mom went to high school with somebody who, you know, was cutting entries someplace. That's kind of what it was. You know, there, there wasn't any, um, you know, any real secret to it. I wish there was. I wish I had some really cool story for you about how it all happened. But, you know, that's kind of what happened is you knew somebody who knew somebody. And then before you knew it, you were cutting airway bills or you were unloading trucks. Or like in my case, you were working nights, the overnight shift. In Quincy, um, no Chelsea. Sorry, Chelsea. Working the overnight shift in Chelsea, Massachusetts, uh, <laughs> eating tuna sandwiches that you made at home, and um, listening to the radio at night, and cutting airway bills, and um, you know doing the input for the cargo as it came in. And then before you knew it, you know you maybe got promoted, maybe you got a chance to go sell, maybe um, you know a client really liked you and you got a chance to work as an account manager, maybe get a job working for one of your clients. But the whole point was, is this was an industry that just sucked you in. It wasn't, it wasn't charming. There wasn't anything fancy about it, but uh, you know, I hate to use that, that, that terrible old cliche. It really was kind of recession proof. Stuff was always moving and it was a steady job. And no matter where you moved in the country, you could usually find a decent job working in freight. Still can. 
So then one day, you know, in, in uh, September, there was this, this terrorist attack that happened in September of 2001. And um, all of us in transportation and logistics and certainly customs, you know, we're, we're faced with this massive change to our business. And that massive change to our business is that customs is suddenly given this new, new awful mission of dealing with counterterrorism. And it's not a new concept. They'd been dealing with cargo security for quite some time because of its attraction to the, um, you know, the drug environment. But they had been told, you know, we don't want to be, by, by, the, by the trade, we don't want all of our crap stopped when it's coming across the borders. What do we do to make sure that doesn't happen? And customs said, that's ah, pretty easy, actually. Um, what you're going to do is we're going to come up with a process that you should follow. It's pretty simple and straightforward. You tell us how you're going to do it. And uh, if we think it's good enough, well, we'll certify in the CTPAT program, the Customs Trade Partnership Against Terrorism. And a lot of companies ended up running out there and becoming a member because the fear was the next time we had an incident like this, nobody wanted to be back in the same situation that we were on, on 9-11, which was borders being shut down, cargo not moving, and then that trickle of freight starting all over again and everybody kind of waiting their turn to get their stuff cleared. So instead, you know, under CT Pat, your stuff should be cleared first. You're going to have less inspections. And, you know, I don't want to sit here today and do what I usually do about CT Pat, which is just vomit all over it. Instead, what I want to say is, is that cargo security went from being something that companies who had stuff that was pretty expensive really focused on you know, instead of companies who just all had something worth stealing focused on, just something that we all focused on. And, you know, it got nuts. It got nuts in the marketplace. There were consultants who, that was all that they did. There were people who left working for great customs house brokerage firms and did nothing but cargo security. There were people who had, had relatively obscure careers who became superstars in this industry. And there were companies who began to spend tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on external advice and whatever was necessary to keep things secure. Well, I know it's hard to believe, guys, but next next year is going to be the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And a year and a half from now is going to be the 20th anniversary of when CTPAT was open to the general community. 20 years. You know, for me, it's disturbing because I think about how much of my life has been spent talking about this program, helping companies to get into this program, bitching and complaining about this program. But it's also frustrating because 20 years on, I'm not sure that the trade community has really grown, really paid much attention, really gotten better when it comes to cargo security. You know, most companies simply got certified for what they were already doing. And many of the changes that were approved by customs, you know, it's not a whole lot to it. It's not a lot of great change. So why, why do I bring this up now? Well, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic and things are crazy. Uh, you can't turn on the news right now without seeing how dangerous certain cities are. 
New York and Los Angeles in particular are absolutely I mean, very dangerous. Poor Rick Moranis. I mean, come on, the key master. He gets knocked the hell out walking down the street in midtown Manhattan. Um, you know, things have gotten pretty crazy again. And um, crime is everywhere. Anytime that you have a serious issue with unemployment, anytime that you have economic downturns, people are going to turn to crime as a means to feed their families and make ends meet. Desperate people do desperate things. And desperate people are going to start focusing on looking for ways to target and you know, possibly steal and, and infiltrate supply chains that have the sorts of things that are very valuable and easy to recoup and easy to resell. And what really bothers me and scares me is, you know, one of the most valuable commodities in the world is probably going to be these vaccines and probably going to be these treatments for the coronavirus and how likely it is that people will try to steal them. People will try to co-opt them, steal them for whatever reason, resell them, back engineer them, whatever the case may be. And, you know, these are difficult times. And I think that cargo security is something that many people in this industry don't want to take on. They don't want to talk a lot about because they don't really understand it. And what's a shame is there are so many resources out there to help you. And all of these resources want to see you succeed. Customs themselves will admit that they know that you're at a deficit, but they want to see you succeed. There are all kinds of, of, of organizations like TAPA and PCSE, HDRA. All these companies want to see you succeed. And there are free um, resources. There are generally inexpensive resources. And, of course, there are consultants out the wazoo that help people with this stuff. The fact that so many people choose not to get engaged is incredibly frustrating to me when you absolutely could be. So, you know, today I, I had a friend of mine come on. I interviewed him, Chuck Forsyth. He's the man. He's the man. There's, there's nobody probably more famous than him with regards to cargo security. You can't find one. There isn't anyone in my business for customs that I think people would say is probably the most famous person, probably the most important person, probably the most um, you know, well-known person when it comes to customs or trade. There's just hundreds of people that are out there that are personalities. Chuck is, he's probably the most famous person, the most visible person. He's the guy that any of us call when we have a question. Any top-tier cargo security professional, if they need something, including law enforcement, the first call they make is to Chuck. So I, uh, I was pretty excited to have him on today and to talk about what are the kinds of things that you know, those people who really aren't a day-to-day -day cargo security person need to know and need to focus on in order to be successful. And um, you know, I'm pretty excited for you guys to hear what he had to say. But and as I close out the introduction here, I think what I want all of you to really understand and really embrace is that there are more ways for you to be successful in managing these cargo security programs than you realize. There's a lot of resources with your customs house brokers, a lot of resources with professional um, associations. ICPA is another great one that you could probably be leaning on and you're, and you're probably not. So, you know, as the pandemic continues to keep us all at home and working from home, and maybe as we begin to get bored and a little bit dull with what we're working on, maybe consider focusing on cargo security as something to get you excited and reinvigorated again and interested in this really bizarre and wacky career that none of us wanted to do, quote unquote, when we were little kids, which is sort of fell into. And for all of you, you know, middle-aged folks like me, 
that remember the good old days of cutting airway bills and on Friday nights while everybody was smoking cigarettes and drinking beer and you know nobody went home until the last truck left and nobody went home until the last piece of cargo that was supposed to make the consolidations came in I uh, I salute you you know here's to us and those like us because to be honest folks there's damn few left so I hope you enjoy this interview with Chuck and um, you know you'll hear more from me at the end of this podcast all right and without further ado ladies and gentlemen Chuck Forsyth Chuck, thank you for joining us today. I always like to joke that all roads lead to Chuck Forsyth when it comes to cargo security. And unlike <laughs> unlike every other time you and I have talked, I am not going to sit here and take the opportunity to make fun of your age, the hundreds of years that you have worked in cargo security, the fact that you're rapidly deteriorating from a cellular <laughs> level. I am simply going to thank you for making time to talk to me today. Um, and it's going to be like a little quick two-part here. So the first thing is, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do for the four or five people on planet Earth that don't know what you do. I work for an organization called the Healthcare Distribution Alliance, and I run a, a uh, subset underneath that of the Pharmaceutical Cargo Security Coalition. Coalition started probably about 15, 16 years ago. Uh, my background is uh, law enforcement. I was with the New Hampshire State Police for 22 years. Then I worked in military intelligence for four years, and then I decided to get into the private sector to make some money before I retired. Uh, Purdue Pharma hired me uh, to secure their supply chain for OxyContin. And that involved bringing opiate and uh, opiate-based products from the Far East into the United States, and their security of them as they moved around. When the opiate crisis was at its peak, I decided to leave Purdue, and that's when I came to work for the HDA. Under the HDA and the PCSC, what I do is I provide counsel to companies, member companies, on all aspects of supply chain security. It could involve physical security of warehousing, the movement of goods, uh, the selection of carriers, modes of transportation. I do audits of supply chain security programs. Uh, I uh, conduct educational seminars through the HDA on supply chain security. We just completed one last week. Um, pretty much just a, a general stopping point for anybody that has interest in supply chain. How, how many times a week do you get a phone call, a text, or an email from somebody with a stupid question? Or I shouldn't say stupid, <laughs> with, with a random question that um, they're like, a Chuck, you know, they always just, they just call you. I mean, you're, you're just you're their resource that they have to bother with this crap because you're the only person they know. We talking hundreds? Today there was four, just to give four you Four of them. Yeah. I'm, happy, four. I'm happy I wasn't one of them. Yep. The, uh, usually averages a little over a thousand. Yeah. The, wow. You know, from the, 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 the slightest of questions to the most complex. Today there was one complex question and one really kind of foolish question. But, hmm. uh, it's a daily occurrence. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the precursor to this podcast today before I started talking to you was how, you know, believe it or not, next year is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And that, that just seems preposterous, right? Um, that that much time has gone by. I mean, to you, someone of your age, blink of an eye, but to the rest of us, 20 years is actually a long time. 
And uh, 20 years is a long, long time. And for 20 years, I would say it's fair to say, you might not agree with me. I would say it's fair to say that people who have more of a customs and trade compliance background, more of a transportation background, have been struggling to understand and find their place with regards to physical security and cargo security and the CTPAT world and to be knowledgeable and understand what they can and be useful when it comes to this stuff. Um, and now, now, you know, with the pandemic, the world's become a relatively more dangerous place. And I'm, I'm still going to sit on my soapbox. And I'm going to say, the longer things are difficult economically, the more likely we are to see increases in crime. And that just gives more people an excuse to use the opportunity to do pretty awful things. So as, as somebody who has, who is the Oracle of Delphi when it comes to security, if you were talking to uh, a young person who was maybe starting out in their first job in supply chain or trade compliance, um, or if you were somebody who was gonna give advice to a young person who wanted to be involved in the kind of business you're involved in, what are some of the things that you would tell them to first maybe study up on or learn about? There are, there's a whole host of places to go to become more familiar with the discipline. There's a number of different industry associations. I'll use TAPR as a perfect example. You and I both belong to that. Uh, TAPR is the Transported Asset Protection Association and they produce documents, white papers and things like that, that discuss um, the intricacies of supply chain security. There are companies that do that for a living, the British Standards Institute, BSI. Is another company that concentrates, not exclusively, but they devote a good portion of their efforts to developing supply chain security programs, analyzing risk and supply chains pretty much from a global, uh, from a global basis. It took me, when I made the transition from uh, uh, public sector to the private sector, I didn't learn about all of this in a year or two or three. And I, I've been in this now for pretty close to 20 years. When I get when I joined Purdue, it was, it was three or four days before 9-11. I mean, I literally, I hadn't even unpacked my house yet. We watched the film of the buildings being hit from moving boxes in the kitchen of my house at the time when it actually happened. Um, it's, a, it's a process, it's like anything else, you go through the same thing with uh, customs and trade. It's a process that you have to keep engaged with all the time. I mean, you can't learn a few things and then call it a day consider yourself an expert and go on from that. It doesn't work that way. It's too fluid of a discipline. Yours more than mine, but it's too fluid of a discipline. The, um, you want, you're gonna to wanna to get into the, the rigors of security, best practices in security, security requirements, things like that. There are other industry associations. The American Society of Industrial Security, as is, I would tell a young person that that would be well worth their time and investment to become an ASIS member and ultimately to become certified within ASIS as a certified protection professional, what they call a CPP partner. That is an individual that has a grasp of all aspects of security. It touches on supply chain security, but it also touches on physical security, cyber security. If I was going to, if I was going to give a young person advice at this particular point in time, I'd tell them to go into cyber. 
cybersecurity and for, for sure. Cybersecurity, and you've said this, you were a prophet for this as, re, you know, as, be, as far back as eight or 10 years ago. This is where you want to be. This is, this is where the demand is now. You look at uh, transportation firms, uh, ocean shipping firms, the, what CGM just got shut down for how many days? Just, uh, just a couple days ago. Um, that's a piece that as recently as two or three years ago, wasn't that people weren't concerned about it, but they weren't paying as much attention to it as they are now. So you want to become as well-rounded as possible, and cyber is a piece of that. You know, Chuck, I, I got to tell you, until you just said it, I'd never heard of as is. You had never heard of us. Never heard They're of the largest, largest fraternal order of security professionals in the world. Wow. There's about 40,000 people that belong to it. They belong to it in a, in a global reach. Um, the, it's a very, very engaged uh, organization. They have a number of uh, publications that they have out, both on physical security and supply chain security. Um, most young security professionals, when they come out of school, that's one of the first things that they target is obtaining that type of certification. There's different types within as is. There's a CPP, there's one for physical security infrastructure. The vast majority of my friends are CPP certified. Uh, uh, it's a great organization if you really want to understand the discipline as a whole. Several friends of mine, the fellow I used to work for, Mark Jurassi over at Purdue, he was the chairman of ASIS at one point in time. Rich Widdop, who we both know, uh, is the CSO of Record Benzinger. He was my partner at Purdue. He, he was the chairman of ASIS at one particular point in time as well. Uh, it's a great organization, it really is. And I quote on numerous occasions from some of their documents best practices in both physical security and supply chain security. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Um, you know, it brings up an interesting point though. You're saying that that's all facets of security. Why hasn't someone like TAPA or PCSE done a security designation for cargo security? It's not as easy as it sounds. The, uh, the American Trucking Association at one time tried to mimic the, uh, and I'm not saying this in a degrading way, but tried to mimic the CPP certification that ASIS has by creating a similar certification for a supply chain security professional within the ATA. Um, it's not that it didn't go over well, it's just not an awful lot of people participated in it. We've discussed this before, because I'm a member of the, I have emeritus status on the board of directors for TAPM. Certifications like that are, are really good to have, but the the legal issues that surround those and the liability that surrounds those when you do that makes for an organization the size of TAPA. TAPA has, TAPA Americas probably has, Jesus, a couple hundred members as opposed to the 40,000 members that ASIS has. So ASIS is drawing from a due set where they can hire the best of attorneys, they can put together programs like that, and, uh, and they have alliances with educational institutions to be able to create that. TAPA has, is, has and is continuing to try to align themselves with a couple different educational institutions that are involved in uh, logistics security and logistics in general. Uh, MIT the, uh, is one that they've talked with. Uh, they've talked with several others to try to 
work together, some sort of a certification program that could be tied to a university where the university would carry the liability of the certification, but TAPA would provide the, the, the instructors and most of the curriculum for that. Yeah, it just seems like they would, um, even with a small number of people, it would make more sense if someone was a customs house broker or if somebody um, was a supply chain professional to have another designation even with continuing education as a requirement, you'd be able to get better information out to them. Yeah, it, it moves so fast and there's, there's so much changing. It just makes sense that there'd be something for them to fall back on. Right. The, one of the fellows that runs, or is not runs, but is the chair of the education committee, Nate White at TAPA. He's based in Mass. He's based up in Cambridge. And Nate has is, is really changed the direction of that part of the TAPA. He's, you've seen it, they're doing more webinars. They have you involved now in doing your uh, uh, trade school. Uh, we, the PCSC and TAPA have partnered together to put on some things ourselves. In this whole COVID environment of not being able to see people face to face, in some respects, it's easy to, to put a webinar up. I mean, to run it is a little bit different, but you're seeing more and more of these things popping up. I'm actually webinar exhausted. The, uh, yeah. When I finished mine last week on, it was a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And Thursday night I went home and I had a couple of Middletons uh, straight up and, uh, and went to bed and saying that this is the last webinar I'm going to take, play, you know, take part in for the end of the year. Yeah. It, it, it gets, it's so frustrating having to look at your computer and sit on your duff and just say the same stuff over and over again or wait your turn to talk. And there's 30 people that are on there and you're not quite sure why you're on a WebEx for an hour or two. It is frustrating right now. All right, well, I'm running out of time uh, with you, but the last time I recorded you, I asked you my, my normal three questions, but that means you have to ask, answer the next three questions. All right. All right, so question number one, the first concert you ever went to. Now, this is probably gonna be Beethoven or <laughs> Bach, uh, if you no, are 380 no. years old. The first no. concert you ever went to. It would be the Doobie Brothers. Oh, uh, really? That would have been the Doobie I Brothers. I love the Doobie Brothers. That would have been in Boston at the Garden. Okay. And uh, the opening act for the Doobie Brothers was Hall and Oates when they wow. weren't nearly as popular. The, uh, so I got a chance to see two things. And it, it was in the old Boston Garden. And I was up where the, uh, the gallery gods sit. The, uh, so I, didn't, I wasn't able to really see it as much as I was able to hear it. But it was great. The Doobie Brothers put on a hell of a concert. They really did. I saw them in the 80s and I saw them again in the 90s. Um, yeah, I, I hate Michael McDonald, but I, um, <laughs> I love the old Doobie Brothers. Life. Yeah, whatever. Oh. Yeah, okay, so does Celine Dion, but I don't, I don't have to like her. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, next question. If you um, were going to die tomorrow, which, I mean, given the fact that you drink the blood of the young and will live forever, that's not going to happen. Yeah. But if you were going to die tomorrow and you were told that you could have one last meal, what one would that last meal? one last meal? Yes, one okay. last meal, and there, and the laws of physics do not apply. So you can have any meal made by anyone from any time, living or dead, doesn't matter. What would that one last meal be? Hmm. Uh, a lamb dish that I had in Tasmania, uh, Australia, that was the most exquisite meal I've ever had. Tasmania is uh, one of the few places on earth that grows raw poppy straw. 
and it's a very interesting island. Uh, it's about the size of Rhode Island. The, and you would think because it's poppy straw, there'd be security everywhere. There isn't because you really can't take anything off the island without being spotted. But they have some very fine restaurants uh, in Launston, uh, Tasmania, and uh, sat down to a meal where I didn't want to leave. The, uh, it was one of the few times where I had a full entree and I went and looked at the waiter like the three suitors, bring me another chicken. <laughs> the, uh, it was, it was, I would have had that again. That's how good it was. How many people live in Tasmania? It can't be that. Oh, a whole heck of a lot. Three quarters of the island is uninhabited the, uh, because of the, ex the climate extremes. Everybody lives along the coast. Now, that's where Hobart is, where the sailing race is, uh, the, the sailing race from Australia to Hobart. Yeah. Got a chance to spend some time in the Hobart port and uh, enjoy the hell out of that. Uh, a phenomenal, phenomenal place. I mean, it, it's. I, if I could, if I could live there, you know, we didn't have kids or anything like that, I'd do it. I mean, it was a fantastic place. Wow. Yeah, I've, uh, I, I was there very briefly on a ship, but um, when I say very briefly, I'm talking like eight hours, and I had the watch and didn't get off. Yeah. So I don't have anything to add to your. I mean, it's for me. It might as well have been Newark. Uh, and then the, la the last question, if you could sit down and have a beer or other cocktail with any living celebrity or uh, sports um, personality and have a conversation, who would it be? Jeff Daniels. Jeff? Yep. Jeff, Jeff why the hell did you pick Jeff Daniels? Uh, forget Dumb and Dumber and uh -huh. some of the other things that he's done recently. His political mindset, the uh, and his knowledge of the political systems and his opinions and things like that. I've I've followed within the last couple of years. I've followed very closely. He okay. is he's very good, very very good. So it, probably, it was a toss up between Daniels and Hanks. It would either be Jeff Daniels or Tom Hanks. Did you watch that show, The Newsroom, that he did on HBO? I did do that. I did watch that. I watched yeah. The Crossing, which he did, where he played the role of George Washington, mm -hmm. and I watched the recent Comey Files, where he played. Uh, Comey in the, uh, the I don't know if HBO or Showtime did. Uh, he's when you compare what he is now to the part that he played in Dumb and Dumber, it's like night and day. First of all, do not disparage Dumb and Dumber. There are no. very <laughs> there, there are very few movies that so well portrayed Rhode Islanders in Rhode Island, in my opinion. Right. Uh, that and there's I'm something about of Mary. Irene. I'm thinking of myself and Irene. But they were all Cohen brothers. Yeah, they were right? all. Right. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, my ex-wife is from Barrington, and the fact that and there's something about Mary, they just rail on Barrington. Um, <laughs> I positively love. So those are the questions, and uh, Chuck, I have a question for you once we're done recording, so you can't just All pop right. off. But um, thank you for, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, what's the easiest way to get a hold of you? Uh, email, so, not phone. Oh, not phone? Email, okay. email not phone. Email address, C Forsyth, C-F-O-R-S-A-I-T-H, at hda.org. Okay. Well, thanks for being on with us, Chuck. And I'm going to stop the recording, ask some questions. And um, thanks for keeping everybody so safe. Yep. Thank you.